Hello and welcome back to Science Shambles. Shambles producer Trent here. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. We've been away for a few weeks on Science Shambles while we've been getting the new season of Book Shambles going and various other bits and bobs but we are back with a whole raft of new episodes over the next few weeks most of the episodes we've got coming up uh were recorded during the summer at various live events that we did so thanks to the people who came along to those and if you couldn't get there uh congratulations you get to hear what went on now and the first of those uh was one we recorded at the latitude festival on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing when we had a mini Space Shambles revival and we were very honoured to have Britain's first astronaut, Helen Sharman, as one of our special guests. And as part of that show, we had a panel discussion chaired by our own Robin Ince uh, and Helen Sharman on there, as well as Professor Susie Imber. So that is this episode. But before we hit play on that, a reminder about some events we've got coming up We'll be at the Norwich Science Festival in October with the comedy play Signals, followed by a talk by Professor Lucy Green about uh, some of the astroscience in that show. And then we're also doing a show with Chris Lintot and Steve Pretty. Chris will be talking about his new book and then we're having a, a festival version of the Universe of Music show with him and Steve Pretty. Robin is on tour throughout November with Chaos of Delight. We will be back with more Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People at Christmas, as well as Robin and Brian Cox's Christmas Compendium of Reason. Tickets available for all of those shows are on the Cosmic Shambles website, as well as for Sea Shambles, which we actually announced uh, on stage as part of this Space Shambles event at Latitude back in July. We will be at the Albert Hall next year on May 17 for Sea Shambles, a huge uh, variety show of all sorts of chaos uh, celebrating the oceans. Make sure you get tickets for that. Please like and subscribe and share Science Shambles. That really helps us out. And if you'd like to pledge to support the podcast and everything we do at Cosmic Shambles, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go and do that. Enough from me. On to the episode. Here is... Robin and Helen and Susie. Ladies and gentlemen, Helen Sharman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Fantastic. And uh, we're also joined by Professor of Planetary Science, Susie Imber, who uh, you might have also seen uh, on the TV series, Have You Got What It Takes?, which was looking at uh, different people seeing if they had the ability to perhaps go into space. I wanted to start on something a little bit personal, first of all, Helen, which is, do you have any sense of how different the human being who applied to go into space was to the human being who then landed back on Earth? Wow. Wow. Um... I think because one of the reasons we're chosen is that actually we're psychologically very, very stable. So big events don't tend to change how we feel about ourselves and how we react. Um, and I don't feel actually inwardly, of course, I'm, I'm older now, I've got more life experience, and I had a little bit more life experience, I suppose, after my space flight. Um, the one thing I did, I suppose, really, space confirmed to me uh, what I'd learned in my training, really, which was that when you look back on Earth, you don't think about the stuff that you own. You know, any, any of your... You know, I honestly didn't even have one thought to my clothes and my carpet and my car and the music, the system, nothing. Because what's really important 
what you miss in space are all that human interaction. It's your family, it's your friends, it's those really individual personal relationships. And so if there's one thing that has changed, I suppose, it's that I try and live my life um, a little differently and make sure, if, if life gets a bit crazy sometimes, you know, what, what really are those priorities? And basically, it's family and friends. Uh, so you, you showed Earthrise there, which is uh, talking to, to Rusty Schweikart, who was a, Apollo 9. And, and he said he believes that, I'll ask you first about this, he thinks that the greatest achievement of Apollo was that picture. It wasn't actually landing on the moon. It was turning, you know, and, and Frank Borman, who, you know, led that mission, he, was, he kept saying to the other two, uh, Anders and Lovely said, I don't want you looking out the window. I don't want you looking out the window. And they were like, we want to look out the window. We're, going to, we're looking back at the planet Earth. And he didn't want them taking that photo because it wasn't on the itinerary. But Rusty now feels that that, that is the thing that has most changed humanity. How do you feel in terms of... Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, actually. So it's hard for us to understand because we're so used to this picture of seeing the Earth from space. We've all seen so many of these pictures. We forget that actually that perspective back then was really, really different. So really kind of puts you in your place, puts the, our planet in its place in the solar system in a way that normal people hadn't been able to appreciate before. Now, you were talking about Mars, and this is, there's a lot of people with different opinions on where we should be going next, whether it should be human uh, spaceflight, whether it should, Why? What do you feel, and I'll ask both of you this, what is the importance of us going to Mars? What, what, why should we be aiming for that? Should I go first? I mean, I think Mars is, is there for humans. We, of course, we've sent robots to Mars, so we don't need to, to feel like go just because we can get something there. But it's that, that exploring and pushing forward our boundaries. And Mars is probably the easiest next place. It's still hard, but it's probably the easiest place we can go to after the moon. Um, so I think we should be there. Um, we should go there to, to really just, just, just enjoy continuing that exploration. And we do, we, we have this, just, it's a natural desire to keep on pushing forward in conjunction, I think, with robots. Um, they really do help us to understand, to make it safe in the first place. And we can, you know, robots are pretty good at, you know, things like sensory acuity, aren't they? So they can, and they can really be very precise. Um, they can be repeatable. Um, they're expendable. I mean, humans are hopefully not expendable. Um, so robots are good, but I think humans, at some point, we still need to go and keep pushing our boundaries. And I don't know what Susie thinks. Yeah, I, I think actually the beauty of human spaceflight is its ability to inspire people. So I'm involved in sending spacecraft all over the solar system to all manner of different planets and moons, and I find that incredibly exciting. Um, but if I talk to a group of young people and I show them people in space, or I talk about people in space, they find that much more inspiring, that human element of thinking about, that could be me, that could be you know my friends, my mum, my dad one day. That really excites people. So if we want to excite a new generation of people who fascinated by science and infused and excited about the industry, then human space like really has the ability to do that in a way that I don't think robots can. Well, I like the idea that people are enthused, and, and yeah, I, I communicate science often by talking about space. I mean, really, a lot of what I was talking today was, a, was about the science in the background, but actually it's just about everyday life. But I, I, you know, I somehow think that inspiring science shouldn't be a reason for going. Mm -hmm. We go because we need to explore, we want to find out other things about the science, the, the space, the universe, and understand about ourselves in all that. Mm -hmm. um, and on the back of that, we can inspire people. Mm. But I, would, I wouldn't like to think that we go into space in Just order to reason, inspire. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So you're talking to a planetary scientist yesterday. I thought this was quite interesting. 
Uh, they were saying they felt that uh, we, we may well not send human beings that far out, but what we will do is send out different forms of uh, automated vehicles, etc., monitoring devices, which will be looking all over our solar system. And what we'll actually do is we'll remain here and go into kind of a virtual world. We'll be able to experience in some ways. Now, how do you feel about that? Well, I think I've heard lots of people discussing different ways to do this. So the idea, if you want to go a really long way away, is that you make a series of machines that you send into space that are able to then mine resources and replicate themselves and continue. And so actually you end up with an ever-growing fleet of spacecraft heading out into and beyond our solar system. And that really is the way to kind of grow your knowledge in, in a rapid way. People, of course, as we know, it's incredibly hard to get them even to the moon, let alone to Mars, so we aren't going that far. But if we want to get information back from a long way away, then perhaps these self-replicating machines are the way forward. Well, we could have a new, completely new method of propulsion. So iron propulsion, electric propulsion is what we really need, I think, to get people um, not just off the earth, so off the ground. I think we're saying that chemical propulsion still provides mm. that impulse mm. to really sort of to, to combat the gravity that's pulling us down. But once we are in space, um, just a, um, something that doesn't have that impulse but can constantly give you that bit more acceleration, can really speed things up. So when we've got that going, maybe humans can go much further. Yeah. Um, but I know I mean, astronauts have been asked, it's really hard to make windows. I mean, it's it's engineering-wise, it is really tough to make a nice good seal between metal of the space station and the glass of the window. Um, and engineers have asked astronauts before, you know, you know, it'd be much better. We won't put any windows on the space station. Instead, you'll have a brilliant camera, you can look through a viewfinder, and that'll be what you need. And the astronauts have gone, right, not going then. No, that's it. <laughs> and no, but really, they, they've said that, that that would absolutely be, be not, not possible because while you're there, you absolutely need to be able to look out with your own eyes through that window. So there is something about humans looking out, looking back, looking forward. What do we need, do you think, to, you know, Apollo seems quite amazing that it was such a short period of time, really, that, that you know, 1972, it was over. That was the last time human beings went on the moon. And it feels that there, there was a, a, a loss, certainly within government, and perhaps also to some extent public interest, that no longer did it felt that it could be justified. What do we need now to give us this extra, and I don't mean this as a pun, but propulsion to go further into space, to actually have the desire where the money is spent? You know, what, what is, do we need some great kind of, you know, existential, or, or even, you know, when you're looking at asteroids, do we need to, oh, there's an asteroid coming, quick. What do we need to drive? us back up there and drive further. Do you want to have a go first? Yeah, sure. Um, so your question is, what do we need to drive us back into well, space Well, yeah, because yeah. it seems that... because it, it, well, I think there's a lot of people who are, are very interested, but it, the actual yeah. people who are going to... You know, the money required and the justification... Well, still seems to be much that's debate. all changing, actually. So, you know, this used to be the provision of the big space agencies who would spend uh, a lot of money sending people into space. But those days are changing now. And now we have the big space agencies talking about partnering with commercial organizations to uh, go to the moon, for example, and, and um, assess the resources there. So on the moon, we've got things like um, rare earth metals, for example. We've got helium-3. There's good reasons why we might want to bring those back. So actually, Discovered by Apollo 17, of yeah, course. Of yeah. course. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, there are reasons commercially for us to go, and that adds another element. The other element of, of the commercial aspect is going to help finance and drive a lot of this return to the moon, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So commercial stuff will be great, which will, which will really provide us with um, the incentive. Mm. But I think, actually, I think what you're touching on, Robin, is something like if an asteroid is coming, the whole world needs to suddenly get together and 
and stop that from, uh, from basically wiping us all out. And then there's the other thing which is slightly less global, um, which would be again back to political. The Chinese are going to go to Mars. Um, Americans, well, it's been no secret. I mean, for decades they've been saying they're going to have a space station, they're going to go to the moon, and they'll go to Mars. Um, NASA has just um, announced that, they've, um, that the Chinese are going to be going to Mars, and therefore they need to go quite soon. So um, I'd be amazed if NASA didn't know before, but no, it absolutely is the case that, um, that, that there'll be a political race as well. But um, I'd like us to go to Mars um, for all of us, you know, we heard back in Apollo 11, they went, men went for all mankind. But using modern terminology, um, humans will go, um, people will go into space for hopefully all of humankind globally. And that would be great not to plant a flag, but to go because we're going there to explore and to use space sustainably um, and sensibly for everybody. That is one of the, the loveliest things, even though it was a space race and it was so much about we're going to beat the Russians. It's fascinating when, when all of those Apollo astronauts talk about the fact that as they went from country to country and country, everyone they met went, we went to the moon. We, you know, and, and there was, even though it was over nationalism in one way and another way, it did seem to have a sense of, of uniting people, that it was, this was a human achievement, not a nationalistic uh, achievement. I think it was partly NASA's PR, wasn't it? Trying to make it not look like, oh dear, we did plant a flag, that wasn't very good. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it was, it, it was we, we did, it, when you think what people can do, and that's what we took inspiration from. So yes, there was that, um, that blue dot and, and, and um, so the environmental movement, but also um, what can people do if we really pool our resources, um, if we, you know, the, the teamwork, we're bringing together very complex um, and varied diff uh, technology um, and systems together, um, and the management of that, we still take inspiration from what humans can achieve um, if we work collaboratively. I think it's important to think about as well on all the missions that we do, whether they're manned or, or whether people on board or not. Um, so our mission to Mercury, that we are a huge collaboration across many countries, actually. So although it seems like it's an American mission or it's a European mission, actually, there are scientists across the world that are collaborating on this. It's not just one nation pushing forwards for the most part. But we do get still excited nationally, don't we? So mm -hmm. Tim Peake flew into space. Uh, yeah, and rightly, we all got very excited about that. Um, uh, did anybody ever know? Did, I mean, uh, put, actually, can you raise your hand if you knew that Luca Palmitano from Italy was going to be flying into space today? A very few hands. So in Italy, they are absolutely crazy about Luca flying today, just like we were about Tim. So somehow there is still that nationalistic fervour. Um, I'm sure it's whipped up by agencies, but we still do like to get behind our own, don't we? Sorry, I probably interrupted you in a previous podcast and I'm going to interrupt you again. Be sure to check out everything else going on at CosmicShambles.com. We've got other podcasts such as Science Shambles where myself and Helen Chersky chat to all sorts of brilliant scientists about their current work and Brain Yapping with Dean Burnett and Rachel England tackling questions about the brain. Exclusive blogs from top science writers like John Butterworth, Susie Gage, Dean Burnett, Ginny Smith and others. Videos, documentaries and lots of live events. The Cosmic Shambles Network is the place for people who are curious about the universe and everything Thing it contains and things that might also it doesn't contain but we're just kind of mucking about with those ideas you know all of that stuff do you looking back now and i know it's not not quite 30 years ago but in terms of where you imagined we would be in space after you had been there are you disappointed or do you, did you feel that we would have gone further at this point I certainly thought that there'd be commercial space flight much more readily available by now. Um, in terms of actually humans going further, yeah, if I'm honest, I think we probably, I, by when I flew in 91, so 28 years ago, I assumed that we'd have got to Mars by now. 
Yeah. And Susie, what do you feel about the, again, this is, where, where, where do you feel we could have been? Because I think the, te you know, Buzz Aldrin, of course, always, you know, he's still, still cross. He's been cross for, you know, 88 years now. And, but he, you know, he's still like, why aren't we on Mars? You know, he thought, you know, after, after the moon, we were going to be on Mars. Yeah, I think we've been um, on our way to Mars, 30 years from being on Mars for about the last 30 years. And I think that's quite frustrating for everybody. But actually, if you think about it, what we want with those first missions to Mars is we want healthy people to be going to Mars and to be surviving. And as Helen very nicely described to us, there are some real severe issues with that. So I'm fully in favor of going to the moon first. I think the way forward is to go to the moon, to understand how to keep people alive, to understand the environment. If something goes wrong, they're at the moon, they're a few days away, they're not six, nine months away uh, in that kind of journey. So actually, I, I think we do need to take those baby steps. And we are reaching for the, the huge step of going to Mars, of course, that's our goal. But we need to go to the moon first, I think. And, and the fact that we're about to do that soon gives me hope that actually the Mars is not so far away now. Helen, if you were going back into space... What are the experiments you would like done now? If you, if you, you were going back there now, are oh, there... Oh, big ones. So I think I'd do a lot more with um, uh, about combustion, actually, um, because that's got a huge um, impact across, um, um, not just about sort of looking at, at actually fire as well, um, but, but future of, um, of propulsion um, and, and, and safety um, on Earth. Um, I'd do a lot more fluid physics kind of stuff. Um, but I've got more interest in earthquake management um, uh, and uh, just... just generally how we, uh, how we can use physics in all science, actually. Um, but there's just so much we can do. Um, there's a lot, so we, we talk about science because that's actually research, um, but the impact that we can make, um, and I'd just make loads of crystals, actually, just wonderful, <laughs> loads and loads of crystals. Were there any experiments that you, you didn't manage to do when you were actually up there that you were desperate, you know, on the list and you were fighting for that experiment and you were saying, oh, you know, I really want to do this one? But, the, but actually for a, a very, um, a not very scientific reason. So the reason I really wanted to do one experiment was because I got a chance to use an airlock because um, I didn't do a spacewalk. So, I mean, I'd love to go out, but, you know, 18 months training, none of my experiments were going out. So, except this particular experiment, which I could use the airlock for. So, it was putting a load of films, um, ceramic films, um, on, a, um, on a frame, and then I had to mount this um, on a sort of an, a contraption that I could then put it out into space. So, um, you put it sort of inside the airlock, close off the inside hatch, open the outside hatch, expose them to space and then do the reverse and bring them all back in again. Um, and it was that using, sort of almost like feeling like I was almost out there, um, which is why I wanted to do this experiment. And then when we did, have, having done it, I remember it because it smelt. And it smelt really weird, almost like a bit of burning, like, like very bare metal. And I assumed, naively, um, with my little chemistry brain, that, um, that it smelt of metal because it had gone out into space, um, the vacuum of space had sucked away the oxide layer, and when it came back in, there was this bare metal that I could smell, a bit like somebody's been welding down the corridor or something, you know, like that. Um, but I'm told that actually, although there, there may be an element of, of that way of thinking, actually it's probably some atomic oxygen that's residual in the atmosphere there in low Earth orbit, and that then um, interacts with any material, so actually even a non-metallic material. If you put it to go out and do an EVA, your spacesuit will come back in, and it will smell like bare metal. Susie, when they are, you know, working out, what, what are the advantages, what are the experiments that you think are particularly what, what are required, which can use the advantage of, of being beyond the planet Earth? There's a huge range of experiments that I think could really benefit from this. So one, of course, is um, the fact that you're above a lot of the atmosphere. So what I'd like to do is put a UV telescope up there and look for the aurora of Jupiter and Saturn, for example. So the moment we do that using the Hubble Space Telescope, that's under some demand, as you can imagine, there's lots of astronomers that want to use it too. 
Um, and so it would be amazing to have something on the ISS that's able to look out and look because um, being above the atmosphere is what you need for that. But also things like if you want to consider microgravity, as Helen very nicely described to us earlier, at the moment, if you're on the Earth, you have a few options. You can use a drop tower. You can go in a microgravity flight, which we've both had the pleasure of doing, which is really amazing. That really just gives you seconds, though. So if you want to understand processes on longer timescales, then you need to actually have that weightless environment for much longer, and the International Space Station is an ideal place to do it. Um, one that we're thinking about doing is um, thinking about radiation damage. So we're interested in radiation damage on organisms, sending out some tiny nematode worms in small capsules. We've got a prototype of this. Um, and, and shielding each pod with different materials to see what the damage to the DNA of these organisms is when they come back after the exposure in space. So things like that, I think, are how we can use the International Space Station. Do you know worms went round the moon mm. in 1968, <laughs> yes. you know, before we actually had people land? But uh, yes. did you ask us the question because you had a good idea, yeah. Robin? I just wonder if that's so what would you do? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, do you know what? I, I still find just that whole, when I see the, the weightless, I mean, to me, one of the most amazing moments is what, how you deal with diarrhea in space because that's, I'm a very fatuous individual. <laughs> and, and that's the, what I love is when you sometimes see these awful human moments. Uh, and you, like, uh, this was Apollo 8, again, Frank Gorman, who's both, where, where he, you know, suddenly was tremendously stomach upset. And, uh, and then there are Lovell and Anders floating around with just kitchen towel going, this is not what we... So I love those kind of, those kind of moments where you go, there are grand ambitions, both for crystals and plant cells and beyond, but also we need to work out a better system for collecting diarrhoea. And I think everyone here, you know, the, the, the moist wipe technology, which is used a great deal during festivals, you know, I, I feel space exploration has been part of that. Um, the... Uh, Apollo, I, I, I want to end on Apollo just because, first of all, Helen, do you have many memories? I mean, uh, Susie, you're not old enough, but we're old enough. To, that, that actual night, um, apart from possibly a parent being annoyed that they bought a colour television and found out it was in black and white, which seems to have been a lot of people's memories. Um, do you have a, a, a memory of that sensation of, of, of watching? Mm, I was sick, so I, I kind of, I remember that there was a hype about it. But I just didn't appreciate, really, how amazing it was. So, you know, when you're six, the grass is green, the sky is blue, people are on the moon. It's all the same. It's all just fantastic and amazing and interesting. So um, I think it was only later that I started to understand that's a long way. And wow, were they brave, you know, and all the skill that they needed and, and that huge amount of, of, you know, teamwork that had to be brought together. It's only subsequently I've realized, I think, how quite fantastic it was. Um, do you remember it? No, I was just, I, 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 was, uh, I was at the stage of not yet being able to recognise my reflection, which I've got much better at now. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was four months old, but I was, uh, I, I do, I, I find each revisit to watching it, it becomes more magnificent. It doesn't become mundane. That moment of seeing, and thinking of Neil Armstrong, just the moment of the first human being to plant its foot on something else organic beyond the planet Earth seems such, a, you know, the fact that we only have, I mean, how many people are left now? Have we got three, four uh, people who've stood on, on the moon left oh, now? There's, there's Charlie there's Jew. A few. Um, uh, and Buzz, of course, and Mike. Buzz, oh, Mike didn't go to the moon, did he? He didn't actually land on it. Um, but you're right. I yes, think we might be down many. to four. And, and I yeah. still think that, uh, I remember when Neil Armstrong died, and it was, it was, there was a magnificent coincidence, which it was, I was walking on the South Bank of London, and it was a harvest moon. And the enormity, the, the size of the moon as it looked to me on that, and, and then thinking, we're going to live on a planet again, not that far away, where no human being has stood on something organic beyond the planet Earth seems yeah. tremendously sad yeah. to me, but hopefully also a drive.
for ambition. I, th I think we will, we will, we will do it again. Um, we will build, as Susie said, we will go to the moon, but en route to Mars, but we will build a colony, of, if not a colony, at least a base on, on the moon, and we'll learn much better. So, you know, I think I alluded in my talk, we, we need to get much better at this closed loop recycling and understanding much more about how we can survive sustainably in space. And when we've done that, we'll be able to, um, to go further and live on Mars. I have one question for you, which uh, Brian Cox sent me. He can't be here because he's having his hair replanted. But uh, the, um, how, what, 50 years on, what does Apollo 11 mean to you now? And that's for both of you. So to me, um, it's, uh, it, when I look back, it's a kind of a, a childhood excitement of the time. But it's just been part of my life, part of our culture. Um, and for me, it's that, um, that understanding that big things can actually happen um, if we collaborate and make them happen. Susie? Yeah, I wasn't alive when, when the moon landings happened. And actually, it's interesting to think about the moments that you remember in your life. And there are some times where you just know where you were when big events happened. And to think that a whole generation of people know where they were when that moon landing happened. They were watching it. They were glued to the screen. I find it absolutely inspirational, actually. And, you know, I wasn't alive to see it. But I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing that happen again and, and sharing that kind of excitement again in the future. Yeah, the nearest we've had to that kind of uniting, I think, recently is uh, the Women's Football World Cup, haven't we? So that was a, that was a, that was a pretty good <laughs> uniting, uh, yeah. Um, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for coming down. Uh, Susie is going to be joining Helen Chersky and Kevin Fong in the speakeasy tent later on. We're going to be talking about the search for extraterrestrial life at about, I think it's about uh, 3.50. Is it 3.30, 3.50 yeah, around, uh, uh, around then? So, so please, please do come along. Thank you very much for coming down, I hope. How many of you want to be astronauts? Who wants to go to Mars? Can I just find out by... That's a reasonable yeah, number. That, that's a very typical latitude <laughs> number, a certain number, and the rest of you go, we'll stay as executives down on Earth dealing with uh, the monetization. Um, so thank you very much for coming down, and uh, I hope you have a fantastic festival, and it really is, it was wonderful to watch you talk, Helen. It's a fantastic achievement. Helen Charming and Susie Imber. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, uh, do consider pledging to support the show and the Cosmic Shambles Network by going to patreon.com slash bookshambles or liking and reviewing five stars, ideally, uh, on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else that you can listen to the show. Back with a new episode next week. Until then, have a great week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.